0: You can turn with me in your copy of God's Word to Acts chapter 18, and also please bookmark James 4. We'll begin in Acts 18, but we'll get to James 4. Uh, today we're going to begin in verse 18. Uh, last week we looked at Paul's time in Corinth, and when I got to the office Tuesday morning, I was looking ahead and just seeing the flow Uh, through the end of chapter 18 and then on into chapter 19. And uh, most of the action that we'll see beginning next week at the end of chapter 18 and then on through chapter 19 will all take place in Ephesus. We'll meet a man named Apollos who is teaching about Jesus in Ephesus and Priscilla and Aquila take him aside and instruct him. And uh, Paul will arrive back in Ephesus and will stay there for a lengthy period of time, and there's a lot that's going to happen. But there's this little transitionary text in between Paul and Corinth, and then Apollos, boldly speaking, in Ephesus. And to be honest, the commentators weren't really helpful here. Uh, Most of the folks I usually read, they would just jump straight from Corinth to Ephesus and they didn't have much to say. But as I looked at this text, I just felt that this needed to be our text and I found something here that I've dug down into and I uh, hope that it's encouraging to you. I, I think it will be. The thing that I've dug down into is this statement that Paul makes. It's in verse 21. He says, I will return to you if God wills. That's where most of our time this morning is going to be spent, with the Ephesians asking Paul, please stay longer with us. And he says, I've got to go now but lord willing i'll be back so we'll see that in just a moment but first let's pray heavenly father we do ask that you would work by your spirit through the preaching of your word in this time father i we we pray that we would have a a right view of ourselves we would have a right view of you and your sovereign care over our lives, and we ask that we would see that. So would you speak to us this morning through your word? I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Acts chapter 18, beginning in verse 18. After this, Paul stayed many days longer and then took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria, And with him went uh, Priscilla and Aquila. At century, he had cut his hair, for he was under a vow. And they came to Ephesus, and he left them there. But he himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to stay for a longer period, he declined. But on taking leave of them, he said, I will return to you if God wills. And he set sail for Ephesus. When he had landed at Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church and went down to Antioch. After spending some time there, he departed and went from one place to the next, through the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. So you can look back in verse 11 of this same chapter and see Luke tell us that Paul stayed in Corinth for a year and a half. He stays teaching the word of God. He's planting the church there. And then after those 18 months, it's time for him to move on. And Luke tells that he sets sail for Syria. He's going back to Antioch, back to his sending church. Uh, back to the church that laid hands on him and supported him and sent him out on these two journeys. And we see that he is not going alone. The end of verse 18, Luke, uh, Luke tells us that Priscilla and Aquila, this believing couple from Rome, are going with him. Then in verse 18, we have this interesting detail that we might read over without much thought. Luke says at century, that's Corinth's eastern seaport, Paul cut his hair for he was under a vow. Now, most scholars believe this vow to be the Nazarite vow. You can read of it in Numbers 6, 1 through 21. This was a voluntary vow one could take to the Lord, and among other things, those who took it refrained from cutting their hair. But here we see Paul on his way out of town, leaving Corinth. He arrives at the seaport. Obviously, his vow has expired, and so he cuts his hair. And here's just a brief, important point I want to acknowledge. Paul undertook this vow for the sake of the Jews there in Corinth. There were some Jews, undoubtedly, in the synagogue who were Wary about the Gentiles being brought in to the people of God. They were uneasy about this change. Maybe in some ways they hadn't fully bought in. They were still on the fence. And so Paul takes this vow for their sake. He takes this vow, something that would have been familiar to them, something that would have been honorable to them, He restricts his own freedom so that he might win them. And he tells us this. I'm not just speculating here. He tells us this in 1 Corinthians 9. 1 Corinthians 9, 19 and 20. Paul says, For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. To the Jews, I became a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law. Not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings." So, Paul, during his time in Corinth, voluntarily took upon himself this vow that he would not cut his hair, he would not drink alcohol, he would not be able to attend a funeral or go near a dead body. And he willingly took this upon himself out of love for his Jewish brothers and sisters that they might be eased and come to a saving faith in Christ. But where we pick up today his time there is over. So he shaves his head, he gets on a ship, he leaves Greece, he'll cross the Aegean and land in modern-day Turkey in the city of Ephesus. And just like we've seen before, he heads straight to the synagogue to reason with the Jews, from the scriptures, that Jesus is the Christ. And how is he received? There aren't any riots. No one's hauling him before the Roman governor. Uh, No one's beating him with, with rods. No one is reviling him. He's getting a very positive response in Ephesus. They actually ask him to stay longer and to teach them. But he declines. He says, I I can't stay. I've got to get back to Antioch. But I will be back if God wills. We're going to come back to that statement in a moment. Paul then gets on another boat, sails from Ephesus to Caesarea, he returns to Antioch, gives a report of the Spirit's work in Greece. And then he begins retracing his steps back through Galatia and Phrygia. All these places that he'd visited before, he's going back to check in with them and strengthen them. And in time, he will wind up back in Ephesus. So now let's get to the statement he makes. They're wanting him to stay. He says, I've got to go, but I will return to you if God wills. Paul is simply saying that his coming back to them, his return is completely dependent upon the will of God. That as long as it fit the plan of God, he would come back. There's nothing unique about these words. I mean, is this the only place Paul says this? You can read in 1 Corinthians 4. He says, I will come to you soon, if the Lord wills. 1 Corinthians 16. He says, I hope to spend some time with you, if the Lord permits. The book of Romans is... Book ended with statements like this. In Romans 1, Paul says, I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will I may now at last succeed in coming to you. And then in Romans 15, Paul says, Pray for me so that by God's will I may come to you with joy and be refreshed in your company. So this got. Him seeking God's will in coming to visit people is something we see over and over again. And the question to ask is, is this just some religious cliche Paul is just speaking? You know, in the same way like we Southerners say, well, bless your heart. I mean, it's just, is it just a common cliche? Or is, sometimes we might think? Is, is someone just saying this is just faux humility? Is it someone just wanting to sound pious or holy? Well, I think with Paul we see that statements such as this express a deep belief and trust in the providence of God. That whether he experiences success or failure, whether people come to faith, or run him out of town. Whether he's unharmed or stoned, he trusts in providence. Even if it means leaving a receptive congregation that wants him to stay and wants him to continue to teach, Paul has a deep conviction Belief in the constraining power of God, that God will determine where he goes, when he will get there, how long he will stay, and what will be accomplished once he is there. Now, there's an important theological term I've used here, and it's the word providence. It's one we should all know, and I'll define it for you. Um, if you want an in-depth dive, you can look in the fifth chapter of our confession. There's a whole chapter on providence. And the confession gets into all kinds of stuff that we don't have time to today. But how it talks about how God accomplishes his purposes through secondary causes. How God is able to be sovereign and to be in control and how, how we make sense of that. And also the presence of sin in the world There's a lot there. We don't have time to get into it this morning, but what I will simply say is that God's providence is his care and supervision of the world that he has created. That's it. We talked about creation a couple weeks ago when Paul was back in Athens And there's an important link between providence and creation. The biblical doctrine of creation is that God made the world and everything in it. From one man, he made every nation of mankind. That's creation. Providence, then, is God's continued care for what he has created. Providence is his upholding And governing the world he has made in such a way that his purposes are accomplished. So providence then teaches that God is not the cosmic clockmaker. Who creates the universe and winds it up and sets it on a shelf and walks away. He's also not the God who is only concerned with great events and great people, and then neglecting the unimportant events and unimportant small people. Now, that is not the God of Scripture. In Proverbs sixteen nine, we read, The heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. Or Proverbs sixteen thirty three, The lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. How, how mind-blowing is that? That statement can be made of the Creator God, that you can cast a lot into your lap, but every decision is from the Lord. Jesus talks about this in Matthew 10. He says, a sparrow will not fall to the ground apart from the will of God. A a sparrow, one of the most small, insignificant bird, will not fall to the ground apart from the will of God. And then Jesus continues to say that even the hairs on your head are numbered. We've got an example of this in Genesis 22. In Genesis 22, Abraham names a mountain, the Lord will provide. He's there with his son Isaac. Isaac says, Father, I see the fire and I see the wood, but where is the lamb for the offering? And Abraham answers his son saying, God will provide. And that's exactly what happens. God stays Abraham's hand so that he does not sacrifice his son. And then he shows him a ram that has been caught by its horns in the thicket. God provides a sacrifice. Now, what is that event foreshadowing? Is that just some random Old Testament text that has been passed down? Some random story. Now that is an event that anticipates the day when God will provide for his people a substitute. He will provide his own son, who is the spotless lamb of God, who would be offered on the cross to atone for our sins. And bring us into a right relationship with our Heavenly Father. This is the providential care of God providing for us. For Abraham on that mountain, it wasn't luck or fortune that that ram was caught in a thicket, it wasn't chance. It wasn't some cosmic accident. It was the providence of God. He was governing and managing the universe he created. And Paul knows this. He believes this. And so he says to the Ephesians, I will return to you if God wills. Now, the, the doctrine of God's providence, at one point in our nation's history was very mainstream and common and widely accepted. And it'd probably be interesting just to discuss and think about why that has changed and why words like providence are uh, maybe relegated to uh, your Presbyterians who we love to talk about it. But it's, it's not mainstream evangelical thought, but it used to be. I mean, you even have a town in Rhode Island named Providence. This is the providence that the founders of that town were naming their city after. This language that Paul uses here, I will come to you if God wills. This was common vernacular. Um, There's one example I found that I wanted to share with you. It's a letter that was written by a soldier during the Civil War. And this isn't the full letter. it's, It's an excerpt. But it says this. My beloved wife, providence has brought me to this point in my life. And I know not what providence has in store for me tomorrow. And if it should be according to providence that I not survive the morn, I will entrust the care of you and of the children to that same benevolent providence. Do we we trust in that same benevolent providence? People, People don't talk that way anymore. People don't write that way. This man... Who, who trusts not only in Providence's care for him, but for his family. He, he's not trusting in blind fate. He's not writing to his wife, trusting in a closed, mechanistic universe. He's not trusting in the direct causality of the physical world or the fixed laws of nature, or even a capricious uncaring deity. This man trusted his life and the lives of those he loved to the benevolent providence of the Creator. Now at times, of course, his providence is hard to see. Uh, The author, the, the hymn writer William Cooper has a song, God Moves in a Mysterious Way. We've sang it before. We'll sing it again. Uh, He begins by saying, God moves in a mysterious way, his wonders to perform. He sets his footsteps on the sea and rides upon the storm. If you're setting your footsteps on the sea, you aren't going to be able to see those steps. He continues and says, judge not the Lord By feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. We remember that the God in charge of this world is benevolent. His hand may be hidden, but his rule is absolute and it is good. You know, I read that soldier's letter and hear him say, I I don't know what providence has in store for me tomorrow. And if providence has in store that I don't survive, I'm going to entrust you and the children to that same benevolent providence. I I, I read that. And my reaction is, oh, that the Spirit of God would give me and that he would give you A similar measure of belief that that soldier had in the perfect, benevolent providence of God. I want to show you this in one other place. Turn now to James 4. I want you to see this. This text goes along quite nicely with verse 23 from Acts 18. James 4, I'm beginning in verse 13. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So, you have a person here who is planning a trip, and they say, This is where I'm going. This is how long I'm going to stay there. This is what we're going to do once we're there. And this is going to be the result. This is what we're going to accomplish. We're going to make a profit. And James ends, that's how it begins, and then James ends this passage saying, all such boasting is evil. How does he get there? Well, this is the contrast of that Civil War soldier. Here is a person living as though they're immortal and there is no God. This person wakes up. And begins to plan his day and his week without any consideration for the providential working of God. I mean, this is what we were talking about earlier, this idea of practical atheism. We may profess belief in God, but the way we live our lives, the way we plan and think about the future betrays a belief that... God is near and he is involved. This is very different from our Civil War soldier. And James corrects them, saying, you don't know what your life will be like tomorrow. You are not invincible. You are not immortal. Your life is like a vapor that's here for a while and then vanishes. Now, does this mean... We just throw out our planners and our calendars. That we stop making plans and we stop working towards goals and saving for the future. No. We need to do those things. Those are wise things. But we do them remembering how brief and fleeting our time really is. That soldier planned on waking up the next morning and engaging the enemy. And at the same time, he knew just how vapor-like life is. What we believe about ourselves really matters. John Piper was, I found an article he wrote on this and he had a a helpful statement. Um, Hopefully this will be helpful to you. He said, quote, You weren't just created to go to Denver and do business. You were created to go to Denver and do business with thoughts and attitudes and words that reflect a right view of your life and a right view of God. Does that make sense? There's a difference where we just kind of, where we can kind of just Impulsively do and follow our own plan without giving a bit of thought to our own humanity and also the sovereignty of God. Or we can pursue the plans of this life with those right thoughts in our mind. There's a difference between just going to Denver and doing business or going to Denver and doing business all the while thinking and acting. And speaking in a way that rightly reflects who we are and who God is. Paul wants to come back to Ephesus. He does come back to Ephesus. But he states here it'll only happen by the will of God. We need to have a right view of our own lives. James says, you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. David writes in Psalm 103, As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field. And the wind passes over it, and it is gone, and its place knows it's no more. Now, that that could be a depressing place to end. But then David says, but the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting. We need a right view of self and also a right view of God. James says in verse 15, instead, instead of saying, I'm going to go to Denver and do business. He says, instead, say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. Remember that the Lord is the one who determines the length of your days. The Lord is the one who is in control of life and death. All we accomplish, our successes, our failures, the results, the profits we make, the business we do, all these things are in his hand. And then we come to the crux of it in verse 16. James says, "As it is, you're boasting, uh, you boast in your arrogance." I think if I was having individual conversations with you, I could ask you, "Hey, uh, <clears throat> you don't have to tell me any names, but I'm pretty sure you know a prideful, arrogant person. Would you just describe?" them to describe the way they talk, the way they act. Um, I, I think I think you would that would not be a problem for you. Um, you. you could describe certain things this person might say, the way they would act that just just drives you crazy. They're so so arrogant. How how many of us That's that's the low-hanging fruit by the way. How many of us, if we were describing what is truly arrogant, would say, thinking that, just making plans and never taking the will of God into consideration at all? That's that's what James is saying is evil here. Talking about everywhere you're going to go, what you're going to do, what you're going to accomplish, and never taking into account that you might not be here tomorrow morning. Never stopping to consider, though you're filling up your calendar, never stopping to consider that it is the Lord who establishes our steps. James says that is boastful arrogance. And to quote Piper again, he says, What is real arrogance? It is not believing in your heart and confessing with your lips that how long you live and what you accomplish are ultimately in the hands of God. What we believe about ourselves and what we believe about God really matters. when we get that wrong, we're we're at risk of being arrogant, of being prideful. The Apostle Paul understood this, and so he taught the Ephesians here that he will return if God wills. And then later he'll write to them. And he'll say that this God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. The same God who chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. The same God who predestined us for adoption to himself. The same God who redeemed us through the blood of his son, forgiving our trespasses. That same God works all things according to the counsel of his will. So, when we think of our life, what does it say about our belief in providence? Is there indifference or disregard? Are we self reliant, prayerless, anxious, prideful people who never stop to truly? Think about our own condition and also the plan of God. Or do we sound like the Apostle Paul or even this Civil War soldier, trusting our lives, our hopes, our families, our futures, all to the benevolent care of God Almighty. There is rest here. That's that's why this verse jumped out at me Tuesday morning when I'm planning the bulletin. There is rest in these words. There's rest in knowing and trusting that the same God who chose us and adopted us and redeemed us through the blood of his son. There's rest knowing that life and death That our lives, the lives of those we love, all creation, all governments, they're all under his perfect providential care. And he's working all things according to the counsel of his will. For the good of his church and the glory of his grace. I want to end with a quote I found from J.I. Packer and then uh, we're done. Packer says, the doctrine of providence teaches Christians that they are never in the grip of blind forces, such as fortune, chance, luck, or fate. All that happens to them is divinely planned. And each event comes as a new summons to trust, obey, and rejoice knowing that all is for one's spiritual and eternal good let's pray Almighty God may it be so Father would we be those who by your grace are able to recognize that each event that comes our way whatever tomorrow brings whether it's Uh, exciting or frustrating, whether it's joyful or heartbreaking, even if it's just the monotony of another week, Lord, whatever it is, would we see it as a new summons to trust and obey and rejoice, knowing that everything you do is for our spiritual and eternal good. Father, help us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.